Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. It's great to see you today. We are in week three of our six-week series called The New Exodus. As we look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that time-wise kind of go together, they complement one another, as it chronicles, or they chronicle, the return of God's people from exile in Babylon, slavery in Babylon, into the land that God has promised them. Not unlike God moving his people out of slavery in Moses' time, in the, in the Exodus, into the land that he had set aside for them. The first week we talked about God as a promise keeper. And we embraced the fact that God, though he keeps absolutely every promise he makes, the challenge that we have as humans is that he doesn't always keep it in the time or the way that we would want him to or expect him to. And that can be very, very difficult. But the people of God here had to embrace that truth. They had to embrace the reality that God was going to call them back. And when he did, the Spirit would rouse those whose call need, who needed to answer the call and take them back to Israel, back to their homeland. When we understand that God is going to keep those promises, when we trust, and that's a big word and a tough word, but when we trust that he's going to keep those promises, we're able to have a faith that can carry us on a journey from one place to the next or into something we do not yet understand, a future we do not yet comprehend, and that can allow us to move forward despite the threats that we perceive even, because we know that if he said he's going to do something, if he said he's going to protect me, he's going to protect me. If he said he's going to deliver me to heaven, he's going to deliver me to heaven. And if he says he's going to return an entire people to their home, he's going to do that. It gives us courage where others wouldn't have it. And where, frankly, I wouldn't have it if I didn't have that faith that God was going to follow through. In week two, we looked at the importance of service and sacrifice. We class or defined sacrifice as giving up on something of value or giving away something of value for the sake of something more important or more worthy. We outlined how the people of Ezra and Nehemiah's time had given up much. They had given up their homes, their careers. Um, they had given up their sense of stability in many ways to take a risk, to take a risk to move back to this place that for m many of them, wasn't a place they'd ever even seen before. It was brand new. And they gave up a lot to do that. And after they arrived even, they gave up even more to begin this process of establishing, re-establishing God's presence here, a visible sign at least of God's presence here in Jerusalem. And we talked about how that calls us to give of our treasures, our time, our treasure, and our talent, those things that we value, because God has throughout human history, and especially for us as followers of Jesus Christ who have come after Christ, we know that God was willing to sacrifice all of those things for our sake. And in light of that, it doesn't make it nearly as hard for us to do likewise for the sake of his mission. He's already done his part, makes it easier on us mentally and emotionally to do ours. This week, we're going to see the people of God do something that they have longed to do for generations, and that is to worship the Lord in the land he set aside for them. 
We're going to look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah again. We're going to look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to look at the beginning and ending verses of that chapter. And I'm going to encourage you to read the verses in between. We'll talk about them. We'll reference them. But there's 37 of them. <laughs> and I would probably put you to sleep. But I would encourage you to read them. Um, they are prayers of strength and repentance and they will move and change your heart just as God's word should. But we're going to begin in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible. And remember, this is 10 years before Nehemiah, give or take. But as I read, it says this, When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Joshua, son of Zodak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God to, in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and the evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding people. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by the ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as well as the free will offerings brought to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stone cutters and the artisans, and they gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by the sea, according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia. So my tongue got tied up a few times on the word offer or offering. It's in there many times there. And, and that should draw us back to last week's message on sacrifice. Uh, those, those offerings, as much as we don't like to think about it, were the sacrifice of animals. They were blood sacrifices designed to cement their relationship with God, to be done in, as a form of repentance, to be done as pay, to pay a price to give up something valuable of their own for the sake of their relationship with God. But the other word I want to focus on here today is the altar. This is one of the first times we see it in these books. But the altar shows up in the Old Testament, or that term shows up 401 times over the course of the Old Testament. And in the, the book that, that Ezra and Nehemiah have some similarities to, the book of Exodus, it shows up 53 times at seminal, important events in the lives of God's people. The first time it shows up in the book of Exodus is Exodus chapter 17. It's right after the people of God have had a battle and, and defeated King Amalek and the Amalekites, somebody that they did not believe they could beat on their own, and truthfully, they couldn't have. It's a battle led by Joshua, but overseen by Moses and the Lord himself. Moses is standing up on a hill watching the battle below as Joshua is leading it. And as he raises his hands to the Lord, as he lifts up the name of the Lord, they are winning the battle. But as the day goes on, as it would for you and me too, his hands are in the air, they're getting tired and they begin to drop and they get lower and lower. And as they get lower, they begin to lose the battle. 
And so Moses' brother Aaron and his cousin Hur, they grab Moses' arms and they hold them in the air for him. And as long as they're able to keep them in the air, they are winning the battle. They are winning the battle because they are calling actively upon the Lord and because the Lord is being lifted up. And isn't it interesting that even there, even Moses, the one that God had chosen to lead his people, needed the help of others to fulfill the call that he had on his life. Keep that in mind. We need one another to fulfill the call that God has on our lives. But they win the battle because they are calling on the name of God. And then in chapter 17, verse 15 of Exodus, it says this, And Moses built an altar, and this is so cool, and named it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Here in Ezra, as they're building the altar, this is the vision that they're having. They are, they are lifting up God's banner even before this time, even before the victory was complete. Unlike Moses' time where they waited till the end before they built this altar, they're building in the midst of the battle. They're standing there building it in the midst of the battle. I would imagine when you're under duress, stopping to build an altar of worship to God, that can, that can seem a little difficult at times. You feel like you don't have time for that right now. You just have to trust that God is going to get you through. But, but I would say that's not the example we see here. I would say the example we see here is that we need to stop and take time to worship God. It says they did so in verse 3, even though they feared the surrounding people. Right? That idea that despite the fact that there was fear and threat of death, because building the altar right there on a hill in Jerusalem for all these peoples to see that we're not the people of God really just made them matter because they didn't want them there to begin with, right? It just made them angrier. And so despite that, they're saying, no, we're here to, to worship our God. We're here to reestablish his presence in Israel as he has promised he will help us do. Other translations, the NASB, for example, doesn't say even though they feared God, it says, for they feared the Lord, or, or for they feared the surrounding people. That was less about being doing it despite their fear, but doing it because of their fear. They're motivated by the reality that, that if they're going to get through this difficulty and this challenge, they need to worship their God. They need to lean in Him, into Him. Regardless, it is the presence of fear and in that presence that they worshiped God. They lifted God's banner for all to see. They valued and placed a high value on worship of him. It is the reason they built those altars. It says in verse 2, it says they began to build the altar of God, Israel's God to be separated or divided from Babylonian gods or the gods of the Samaritans or Israel's God. It's important. Their God, not a different one. It says in order, to, in order to offer burnt offerings, they did it at to, in order to worship God. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They are doing it in the presence of God in Jerusalem, and they are doing it together. They're not simply doing it in their own homes. They are choosing to do it together. It's again, just as we talked about with Moses, him needing his brothers to hold up his arms so he could fulfill the command that God had for him. They need to be together to fulfill God's call to worship and to rebuild because that is what they're there to do. 
But they're doing it on a new altar. It doesn't say they used the altar from before. It says they laid the altar on its foundations. They built a new altar. As we said before, that, that term shows up 400 times in the, in the Old Testament. There are many different locations and, and ways and times and places that they build altars. In Exodus 17 that we just read about, they built that offer in the altar in the city of Rephidim. It's nowhere near Jerusalem. <laughs> but they built it because that is where God had been victorious for them. And that is where they wanted to remember. And that is where they wanted to say thank you by making an offering to him after the battle was won. Pre-exile, before they left for Babylon, they would have done it in the temple compound, in that area is where they would have made those offerings, and God would have been pleased by that, to have those offerings taken there. Altars over time are, are different. They're in different places. They're, in different, they're made out of different materials. The, the first instructions we see on the building of an altar are in the book of Exodus, and, and they're built out of, it's built out of ground, out of dirt. It's a mound of dirt, probably because dirt doesn't burn, right? That's, that's pretty safe. If you're going to sacrifice something and burn it because they were burnt offerings, you really don't want to build it on wood. That wouldn't work out well. So they're built out of ground. But he also takes the time in chapter 20 of Exodus to say, but if you decide to build it out of stone, also safe, you shouldn't hew the rocks. In other words, don't cut the stones. Just take the stones as God made them and lay them there, and that will be sufficient. That will work great because God will be pleased. These altars were also, over time, built by different people. Cain and Abel have built altars. Moses and his people built altars. David and their people built altars. Here, Ezra and the priests of the time built off altars together. And they involved their families in doing that. But something critical that I think maybe we in our modern day would do differently. They built the altar before they built the temple. I think sometimes we would try to figure out how we're going to build the space <laughs> that we're going to meet in and then say, oh, we need to put an altar in there. But God is saying, no, worship of me comes before the building of the temple and the establishment, the reestablishment in this case, the symbol here is the reestablishment of his presence in Jerusalem. You must worship first, then my, my presence will be established, not the other way around. This tells us something about the priority of worship in the lives of God's people. And it also tells us something about the belief that God will finish the battle. Even if they're stopping to do it in the middle, they're doing it in the middle because, and they feel they can and frankly need to, because God will finish the battle. That's, that's what I call faith, right? To be in the middle of whatever difficulty you're in, whether it be a physical battle or an emotional one or a spiritual one or just a time of such tragedy and difficulty in your life if you're dealing with, we've talked about it all the time, just life, lost jobs, lost family, illnesses. They stop in the middle of whatever that battle is and they choose to worship because they recognize that maintaining that connection with God, lifting up the name of the Lord matters in the middle of those challenges. It is where their help comes from. The, my help comes from the Lord, as the psalmist says, the maker of heaven and earth. Worship, this worship they are conducting, 
It's, it's a twofold act of, of both remembrance and anticipation. They're taking the time to remember who God is and, and what he has done for them, as we should when we worship, stopping to take time to remember who God is and what he's done for us. That, as we alluded to last week, we are here because he put people here before us to carry the message of the gospel. Without them, the intervening 2,000 years between the time of the death of Christ and ascension of Christ, and now it would have gotten lost without those people. Those people did what God wanted them to do. He was faithful to them. They were faithful to him. As Christians, it's pretty easy for us to say, or we should be able to say, we can remember what God, who God is and what he's done for us. That he has given his son's life for us so that we may have life. But then it's also about anticipating that he will act again. That concept of anticipation. Today we kind of relegate it to this just this feeling of expectation, right? We're anticipating. We have this feeling that something's going to happen and we're excited about it. We're getting ready for it. Going to a concert or, or in the case of you know, most marriages, there's this anticipation of the wedding day is coming, right? This, this kind of excitement and nervousness all wrapped up in one of, of, of an event or a moment that's going to happen. But that, the word originally carried with it much more. When, when the texts say that God's people were anticipating or were preparing or were getting ready, there's this notion that goes beyond just this feeling of expectation. It's about preparation and action, Noah built an ark in anticipation of the flood, right? And Hebrews 11.7 describes it this way, By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. He did it by faith of that something that God said was going to happen but hadn't happened yet, he anticipated it happening and he built an ark. It wasn't just a feeling. It was preparation and action as he prepared for what God was going to do. In Exodus chapter 12, where God helps his people, frees them from Pharaoh, he tells them to sacrifice animals and put blood over their doorposts in anticipation of the Spirit coming through and saving them who had done that, saving those who had declared themselves to be protected by God himself. They, they took action, they prepared, they got ready for it, and they did something with it. For Ezra and for us, this worship that they are doing at the altar then and that you, I hope, are doing a little of now or engaging with us now or, or doing on your own time some because some worship should be done on your own. It should not be relegated to one day a week. But this worship should prepare. It should prepare our hearts and our minds in anticipation of God moving. And so often when we come to things like this, we come prepared to remember and we come desiring healing. And both of those things are so true. But we don't, I don't think often bring with it this sense of anticipation that God might do something amazing today and exiting this time of worship together, that God will continue to do amazing things in my day, in my life, that he's going to show up on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. I get the sense that worship, when we are, this, especially this group worship we do together, is intended to be both about remembering what God has done 
and anticipating, preparing our hearts and our minds for what is about to come, what he is about to do. Because I don't know about you, I don't know if I could get through life if I didn't really believe that God is going to continue to work just as he always has. He's going to continue to carry us. Anticipation. And so when we're together, our time here is is about preparing our hearts and minds in anticipation of something he's about to do. If we look at our story today, this anticipation turns into praise. In verse four, it says, they celebrated the festival of the shelters as prescribed and they offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by the ordinance in each festival day. This festival of shelters or uh, Sukkot as it's called or the Feast of Tabernacles is another name for it. It's the most joyous, one Jewish scholar says, it's the most joyous and longest of the feast and the festivals. So when, when it says they are celebrating here, that's exactly what they're doing. They're celebrating. They're celebrating even though the battle isn't over yet. Seems kind of crazy, right? The coach at the football game, if you <laughs> if you took your football coach and poured Gatorade on, on him at halftime before the game was over, he would probably get mad. <laughs> He'd be like, what are you doing? We're not done yet. And I don't know about you, with sports as well, if I'm watching a game, I'm really not happy until the clock says 0 and we are up right? (laughs) I'm nervous and intense about it almost all the way to the end. But here they are, the people of God in the midst of it, the battle, in the midst of the challenge, celebrating. They are celebrating the work of God. And this, this temple, this feast of shelters is designed to memorialize what God did in Exodus. It memorializes God's holy dwelling place in the tabernacle in the desert. So not even in Jerusalem, but he's present with them. When they are worshiping him, when they abide in him, he abides in them. Jesus would make the same promise later. So during this festival, they even choose, and still to this day some do, choose to leave their homes for a period of a number of days, and they live in shelters, in rudimentary tents and shelters to try to recall or remember. And they're celebrating with a joyous heart all the way along. I remember the last time I took uh, one of my sons to a Cub Scout trip, and, and I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, and I and I scouted, I scouted, or we camped in warm weather, cold weather, all kinds of stuff. But the last time I took one of my sons to a Boy Scout camp, it had an electrical outlet. And so when I put up my tent, I put a space heater in the tent and slept on an air mattress. Why? Because I don't really want to sleep in a tent. <laughs> I did not find that to be celebratory. I did it for the sake of my son and our relationship and his desire to accomplish something. I did it to have a moment with him. It would be hard for me to see celebrating in a tent when, it's, when it was 35 degrees out or 30 degrees outside. <laughs> but here they are, celebrating yelling, I would imagine, loudly, singing songs of praise, lifting up his name. They are celebrating in the midst of the fight. They are worshiping him in the midst of all of this. Ezra's people are celebrating what God has already done and in anticipation of him doing more in the days ahead. This anticipation also turns 
to action. This anticipation in their worship turns to action as they begin investing. We saw at the beginning of our text, at the end of our text today, they, they began to invest more of their time, their treasure, and their talent, all because they believe that God is going to continue to do something. This is faith. This is trust. This is hope. And that anticipation turns to joy despite their circumstances because they are in the love of God and the love of God casts out all fear. God is in charge. And so there's this notion of them being full, not just worshiping because they have to, but worshiping because they need to, because they genuinely believe this is part of what it means to be a follower of God and that it, it genuinely brings a smile to the face of God and it genuinely is required for them to move forward, to remember both the things that God has done and to anticipate that he's going to do so much more. It has great value to them. But if we go over to the text of Nehemiah, there's a couple of more things, components to worship. It's Nehemiah chapter nine. And in Nehemiah chapter nine, he also reminds the people that there is an element of confession and repentance involved in worship. Worshiping the one true God requires a clean heart because we are worshiping a perfect being. And so to do so requires sometimes those elements as well. If we look at Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 5, it says in the 24th day of of this this month, the Israelites assembled. So this would be years later, right? They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those are signs in the people of God that they are in repentance, that they know they have done something they should not have done. They have fallen away from him. They have forgotten about him. They have returned to the, the things that got them to Babylon. They're in mourning. They're in mourning for it. That's what the sackcloth and the dust ashes are. Those of the Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. They owned the mistakes their fathers and grandfathers had made. And while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. And they spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of their God. (laughs) We spent an hour and a half in church on Sundays. They spent half their day. Keep, Keep that in mind. And then verse four, it says, Yeshua, Bani, Shebani, Buni, Sherebai, Bani, and Chenani stood in the raised platform built for the Levites and they cried out loudly to their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmai, Bani, Hashbani, Sherebani, Hodai, Shebani, Pethani said, stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Sometimes I read those, all those names because I want you to recognize that <laughs> stumbling through them is normal because this isn't, most of us, this isn't our native language. If it's Hebrew, you're probably in good shape. But for the next 31 verses, from verse 6 to 37, they participate, the people of God gathered together again, participate in a beautiful long corporate prayer that is filled with remembrance of who God is and what God has done. And it leads them to action. 
And it finishes, because it finishes in this, it finishes in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. It says, in view of all of this, after they've repented of their sins, after they've confessed their sins, after they've said, God, we want to be back in relationship with you. God, we want to make this right. We want to worship you with a clean heart because we know you are the one who will keep the promises. You are the one who will carry us. You are the one who will bring joy when it seems like that would be impossible. And it says, in view of all of this, this is again, Nehemiah 9 verse 38, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our our leaders, Levites, and priests. They are taking action. They are making a commitment. Ultimately, isn't that one of the ultimate forms of worshiping God? making a commitment, making a commitment to what he is calling you to, making a commitment to trust him in the midst of our difficulties and challenges. The people of God in Ezra's time were challenged by that, right? Because we, we, they wanted to believe they could, they could control it all themselves. I think that because I think all human beings want to believe they can control it all themselves. But part of worshiping God means surrendering to him trusting that he will carry you, making a commitment to lean into him, to follow where he leads, to praise and worship him, and to offer our time, our talent, our treasure to him because he is worthy, because he will carry us, and because he is life. If you have to make a commitment today of some sort, if you're lacking the joy of God, if you don't find it, it's possible for you to really worship him, if there's a stumbling block in your way, I would suggest reading Nehemiah 9 out loud. Read those verses out loud. Hear them. Let them bounce off your soul. Consider the things that God is calling you to. And know this. Know that if you're willing to make that commitment to him, that he will always be there, that he will never leave you or forsake you, and he will keep his promises to you and bring you joy beyond your wildest dreams. True story. True story. It's my hope and prayer that you can find a way to do that because God is here waiting. He's waiting. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.